Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, Shannon Mulcahy's job in an Indiana steel plant was headed to Mexico. Donald Trump vowed to keep those kinds of jobs inside the United States. How the promise of America first has collided with the reality of American manufacturing. It's Wednesday, October 18th. I'm going to bring jobs back. We're bringing jobs back to our country. We're not going to let Carrier leave. We're going to take numbers. We're going to do numbers. There are consequences when you leave. And we'll talk about Carrier because say what you want, Indiana. I've been talking about Carrier now for four months, right? Before I even knew that we were going to be coming. I mean, literally from the day. Literally from the day. Just a mile down the road from the Carrier plant in Indianapolis is the Rexnerd plant, where steelworkers have been manufacturing the Cadillac of steel bearings for nearly 60 years, strengthening the parts through a process known as heat treating. I I gotta say, I've never ran scrap the whole time I've been there. You've never, you've never run scrap? Okay, I guess that's kind of shop talk. Scrap is like a bad part, like knowing that it's Mm. bad and you send it on through. Shannon Mulcahy worked at Rexnerd for almost 18 years. And heat treat, it's got to be pretty much perfect. You know, we've got different customers that depend on that bearing and it can't fail out on the field. I mean, whether it be conveyor, a bridge, different things like that to hurt somebody out there on the field. And if you Mm -hmm. get that part, say, you didn't temper it enough, okay, that will lead to the part cracking and breaking. Some of these are infrastructure that carry human beings back and forth. It would seem... Pretty, pretty vital. Um, I take pride in my work. Shannon is a 43-year-old single mother of two who dropped out of high school. My colleague, Farrah Stockman, has been reporting on the plant. She was a legacy hire. My Uncle Gary got me a job on there. It started out as a janitor. And at the time, you had to know someone to get a job at this factory. And so she begged him for a job. Yeah. Wasn't kind of like the janitor who cleans the bathrooms. It was the janitor who shovels out the machine chips and the coolant, fill the coolant, pump out the machines of the coolant. It was a nasty job, (laughs) but I stuck with it. I was actually working as an assembly at this time when I signed a heat treat job. I was trained by what what I call the old timers. 
the old timers would say heat treat is not for a woman. And they mm. hazed her. They tried a lot of different ways to kind of get her to quit. And I'll be honest with you, I was ready to walk out of that department. I We was doing a light up on the furnaces, and which that's the most dangerous part of your job. And uh, to, to turn the furnace on. Yeah, to light the furnaces. And I was going, yep, yep, listening to him. He goes, now go over there and open that valve over there. And he didn't say open it slowly or anything. So I just went mm-hmm. over there and I opened that valve and that son of a gun went, boom. It scared the <laughs> crap out of me. And I really was really thinking about leaving at that point. But hmm. I didn't. I actually learned from them sabotaging better than anything, I think. Yes, <laughs> I had to figure it out. <laughs> You got to go up these stairs. Then you got to go down the stairs to turn the machine on, which is on this panel. And Shannon got to know these machines really well, and she had personalities assigned to these machines. And her favorite one was the taco. (laughs) I know it like the back of my hand. I felt like I bonded with that machine. I mean... The taco was probably my best furnace, say, that I would run for all the years that I've been there. It was me and the taco. <laughs> she talks about the taco like a, it's a needy boyfriend that breaks down whenever she doesn't spend time with it. Anybody was having problems and couldn't get it to run, I was sent over there to try to troubleshoot to get that thing to run. <laughs> She was essentially in charge of the furnaces there and working with dangerous gases, working with fire in a position that no woman had ever done before. When I would do setups, you know, on the taco, like I didn't have a CD player because of all the oil in the air and stuff. But sometimes when it would be so hot in there that music would take your mind off of how hot you really are in the heat treat. Metallica, and then we got Bob Seger, Leonard Skinner. It'd be like 125 degrees sometimes. And she was known for being able to tell if the parts were going to come out right just by the sound of the spinning machine. Like when you're running apart, and it's going to sound stupid over this, but there's like a frequency sound, okay? And whereas some guys like to go back and look at the power supply and, and watch the numbers, I don't do that. I just, I can tell by the sound. The sound. She could just hear from the pitch whether she needed to add energy or add heat. She just knew the machines that well that she could do it by feel. It's like a, a high-pitched tone, it's very unique. Nothing's, I can't say anything sounds like it because it doesn't. If it's got a really dull pitch, hmm. a really low, bogged down sound, I know that's not good. And then if it's got a high pitch, I know it's good. This is a really detailed and involved process you're describing. Yes, it is. 
it takes experience. It's not something you can just train overnight. I will say that it takes experience, takes time. So I really got this picture after spending so much time with Shannon of how she had really grown up in the factory. She started at age 25 when she was this hot young thing that would (laughs) turn heads on the factory floor. And by the time she was 43, she was a woman who was used to having oil in her hands. She would come home and her kids would say, you smell like cars. You smell like a mechanic. I guess that was just my style. And I liked the fact that I didn't have to get up and put makeup on and all that stuff and try to look pretty to go to work. I could roll out of bed and do my makeup there if I had to, or even not even wear makeup. So that's the part I I like. She became one of the best because she worked her way up from a janitor all the way to being a heat treat operator, which was one of the highest paid positions on the factory floor. I was paid $25.16 an hour. I started out at $7.53 an hour when I started out there. And then I would say I would work 10 hours a day, five days a week, and then I'd work eight hours Saturday and Sunday, and I would bring home a little over a grand a week. Good money. Yes, it is good money. I mean, financially, this job was a was a big opportunity for you. Very big opportunity for me. Never would have dreamed, you know, that I was able to make that money and drive a nice car and not have to embarrass my daughter by taking her to school like my mom. I hate to say it, God bless her. My mom was a single mother and and she didn't have a college degree or anything. She worked cleaning rooms and restaurants, so we really never had anything much of anything growing up as a kid. I wouldn't even go to the store with my mom sometimes because I was embarrassed because she had to use food stamps. And I mean, I liked having that kind of money. I bought me a new car, a house, and I could go in and buy my groceries with money that I worked for. Mm-hmm. You know, this job here would be able, I'll be able to stand on my own two feet and be able to mm. take care of myself and not depend on anybody. You don't depend on no man. I mean, no offense, but you never know about men. I don't depend on them because you never know. It sounds like men may have also disappointed you somehow. I'll be honest with you there, yeah, all my life. She was a domestic violence survivor, essentially, Mm. and she basically was liberated by getting this job at this factory in a position that no woman had ever done before. So on October 14th, 2016, I had just gotten to work. She came in that Friday and my boss comes to me and says, Shannon, he said, I want you to shut everything down, put the furnaces in idle at 1500 degrees, take the gas out. And he said, well, when you're done, just come to a meeting in the back dock. And I'm like, what? Are you serious? And he's like, yes, please. By the time she was done, she started walking to the meeting and she could hear her coworkers yelling. And they were just told that the factory was closing and their jobs would move to a new plant in Mexico, Monterey, Mexico, and another facility in McAllen, Texas. I know that this is an incredibly tough message and you guys have a lot of questions. At this time, because we've just engaged and we've just invited the steel workers to start talking, I don't have any further information. I can't answer any questions. And some of these workers had spent their whole lives in this plant. They were totally shocked, even though the company had been secretly planning this for years. 
It's got to be a tough job to do that everywhere you go, huh? Oh, I mean, I made it to my car, and I cried and cried, and I just was thinking, what am I going to do? Even though I made good money, I still work paycheck to paycheck. I didn't plan on saving any money for something like this to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. I would have never thought. And this was a really tough time for her because Shannon also had a daughter who was a high school senior who wanted to be the first in her family to go to college. And Shannon wanted to try to help her pay for it. I was freaking out, like, because I don't want her future to be ruined because I lost my job and unable to pay for her to go to college. And she also had a son who was really financially struggling, didn't have a job depended on her financially, and he had a four-year-old daughter who was disabled, and they both depended on Shannon's paycheck. She was the breadwinner of the house. I got to have a roof over her head and, you know, a decent place for her to live. You know, if it was just me, I mean, I, I can live on the street if I had to. I don't want to, that thought of that, but, you know, it can happen that quick. I just want to be sure I understand your financial and familial obligations at this point when when you hear that your employer is going to be moving all these jobs to Mexico. You have your house. Yes. You have your car. Mm-hmm. You have a son who doesn't work. You mm-hmm. have a daughter mm-hmm. you're helping to support and you have mm-hmm. a, a quite sick granddaughter. Yes. As well as just yourself yes. and everything that you need to do to take care of yourself. Am I missing anything? No, and my dog's. The night that it happened, she drives home. She's incredibly upset. Mm -hmm. And she writes on Facebook that she wishes that someone would burn the factory in Mexico to the ground. Wow. She was so upset. And she just didn't know what to do next. She couldn't believe that it wasn't against the law. How could this not be against the law to send people's jobs overseas? What is going on? We are going to make this decision now. The Fox News decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. And then a few weeks later, Donald Trump wins the election. Donald J. Trump is the president of the United States elect. He spoke to the disaffected. And she suddenly becomes hopeful that he's going to save her job. And she's not the only one. A lot of the co-workers at this factory felt like he was definitely going to save their job, especially after Trump started tweeting about them. The president tweeted about their company. Yes. You know, Rex Nord is firing 300 workers. No more. Well, a tweet from President Donald Trump criticizes Indianapolis manufacturer Rexnord for moving a plant and jobs to Mexico. An Indiana company's decision to move to Mexico is getting renewed attention tonight from President Trump. He tweeted this evening. said, Rexnord of Indiana is moving to Mexico and rather viciously firing all of its 300 workers. This is happening all over our country. No more. I thought, well, wow, he does notice us people that's down here, you know? And they spent hours debating, like, what does that mean? No more. No more including Rexnord? Or is Rexnord included in the no more? But a lot of them really took it as a sign of hope. He's going to save this factory. I was very hopeful. Uh, All of us were hopeful. A lot of us there at Rexnord was 
thinking that he might step in and stop what was going on, you know? So you believed that Trump could potentially I mean, he's the president. Why couldn't he? He can do whatever he wants, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to mm-hmm. a point, I mean, I just kind of thought, you know, because he's, he's kind of like a cowboy. He says things probably like a lot of past presidents wouldn't say. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the way he talked about American jobs and 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 all that, I was thinking, you know, this could be the opportunity where mm-hmm. he's right that, you know, a lot of our jobs might come back from overseas and things like that. And a lot of people get their jobs back. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, she voted for Obama in 2008. I, I did vote for Obama. And I do still to this day say that Obama is a good president, was a good president. And again, I wish he could be there again. <laughs> she liked what he did for health care. And she thought about voting for Hillary because Hillary talked about the Family and Medical Leave Act, and which is something that hmm. Shannon had used when her granddaughter got sick. But at the end of the day, the job was the most important thing for Shannon. It was her entire life. It was her identity. The other things were, you know, they were luxuries. They were a social safety net that she didn't want to have to need. So she was on social media supporting Trump. She would tweet to him anytime he tweeted about Rex Nord, she tweeted back. He was all over her Facebook page. She felt like he did care about people like her and spoke her language. So she got really excited and thought that maybe they would have a chance that he would swoop in and save them. I assume this isn't all for me. Um, First of all, welcome to Carrier Indianapolis. It's an honor uh, to welcome President-elect Trump as well as Vice President-elect Pence and the new governor, Governor Holcomb, from Indiana today. A couple weeks after Trump wins, he comes to Indianapolis and announces this deal to save some jobs at a plant called Carrier. And, in fact, it's the same union. And the president-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. So the people at the Rexnord plant get their hopes up even more. And you can see on their Facebook pages, a lot of them are like, he gets results. It's going to happen. You have to understand, we can't allow this to happen anymore with our country. So many jobs are leaving and going to other countries, not just Mexico, many, many countries. But we're losing companies. It's, It's unbelievable. One after another. Just one after another. We're going to have a lot of phone calls made to companies when they say they're thinking about leaving this country because they're not leaving this country. They're not going to leave this country. And the workers are going to keep their jobs. And they can leave from state to state. And they can negotiate good deals with the different states and all of that. But leaving the country is going to be very, very difficult. So So they get even more excited. But the company keeps pressing forward with its plans. And you see a letter from the CEO hanging on the bulletin board saying, nope, we're moving, and we're going to bring Mexican trainees into the plant in the next few weeks, and we want you to train your replacements. And if you don't, you're not going to get a severance package. So every single worker on that factory floor was faced with the decision Hmm. of, do I train my replacement or do I refuse? And there was a huge divide between the ones who decided to train their replacements and the ones who stood up and said no. Did 
to see what's going on across this entire country is disgusting. It's disgusting. It's nothing but corporate greed. We all know that. That's what we're talking about today is corporate greed. If you don't train this company, screw it. They have to have us to train. If we stick together like we're supposed to within a union, they're screwed. They don't have anybody to teach them anything. A lot of the union reps, the union itself, really encouraged people not to train their replacements. They, as a protest. As a protest. They thought they could save the plant because the corporate bosses and many of the supervisors didn't know anything about building a bearing. And they couldn't train the Mexican replacements. So they needed those workers to pass that knowledge on. And the workers knew that. So a lot of the people in the union were like, we should just refuse. Only I have that knowledge. Only my, my co-workers have that knowledge. Do you know anybody who agreed to train? Absolutely. My guy on day shift that I follow agreed to train. Talk to him every day. What do you think about it? I think they're scabs. Just be honest with you. It's no different if we were out on strike and you crossed the picket line in my eyes. It was a very divisive time. Friendships ended. People stopped speaking to each other. I didn't want to like go verbally. Atta- emotions were high. I didn't want to go verbally, just attack him and assault him. And so I let a couple of days go by, and I, I just basically said, "Man, I can't believe you're going to do that. You know, you're selling us all out." And one guy walked out of the factory and quit when he heard that his friend had signed up to train. He just walked out and. and- and ended his walked own away career from the severance, walked away from everything and quit. Wow. He left like more than $10,000 in severance. And I later talked to him and he said, yeah, it's just depressing to see that you ain't got a future. You know, we talk a lot in this country about the white working class. The working class, we talk about it like it's white. But in fact... The working class is not white. There's a lot of black people in the working class. And this factory was about 40% black. Mm -hmm. And from what I could tell, people really got along. They were on the bowling team together. They went to Colts games together. They ate dinner at each other's houses. There were at least two romances that I knew (laughs) of that were interracial. It was a very interracial factory. But I noticed a pattern. A lot of the people who were so upset about the closing, the people who walked out without their severance, or the people who went on television and talked about how they felt like nothing. They were so outraged by this. They were white. And when you talk to the black workers, so many of them made the decision to train right away from the beginning and with no shame. They just raised their hands. They said, I'm going to get that money. We can't change this decision. We can't stop it. Let's just agree to train and get that money. Farah, how do you account for the grievances of the white worker and their unwillingness to train the Mexican workers versus the general willingness of the black workers in the factory to participate in that? You can see a lot of studies, nationwide studies, about the American dream and optimism. And you'll find that Working-class whites are very pessimistic about the future. They don't believe the future is going to be better than the past because they've seen their economic prospects decline for 30 years. You know, in the 60s, that factory was probably all white men. And in order to get a job there, you had to pretty much know someone in there. So they had like a monopoly on all those jobs. And then over time, you see their monopoly on the job disappears. 
there's no denying that the economic prospects of a white guy without a college degree has declined pretty dramatically over the last 30 mm-hmm. years. Whereas everybody else have still seen an upward climb because they started from such a low place. And so I think when you talk to black workers, one, they didn't feel entitled to the job. And two, they thought, well, we're used to it. (laughs) We're used to Mm. bad things happening to us. And three, I think they still feel like the best days are ahead. What about the women in the factory? I mean, I think the women were also more willing to volunteer to train. Maybe they needed the money more, or maybe they remembered what it was like when people didn't want to train them. I stopped and I thought about it, you know. Shannon's granddaughter had spent months in a coma that year. She had lost all her fingers. Somehow the cannula punctured through her heart, so she had went into cardiac arrest. She has a scar on her chest. I took my eyeliner and I traced the scar around her chest, and it looks just like an angel wings right on the front because she had like four open heart surgeries that week. She doesn't walk anymore. She don't talk anymore. She has a trach. Um, She lost all of her fingers on her right hand, and um, she lost all the tips of her finger on her. Hmm. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, she's a fighter because she's still here, and she's still, she's a happy little baby. She goes through a lot. I always think, you know, things could be worse. What is your granddaughter's name? Carmela. Carmela Linda Marie Roberts. (laughs) So Shannon really has a lot on her shoulders this year. And she really thought, well, I need this money. I need this money to take care of my family. And I'm going to take every dime I can get. And that's what's important here. That's what the main goal is here. It's all about that dollar bill, that mighty dollar bill. And you know what? I'm going to make it while I can make it because I'll never have a chance again to probably make that again. So ultimately, she decided to do the training. So when did the Mexican workers first arrive? So right around Christmas time, the first group comes. And when they walk in the plant, some people freeze. I don't know. I just, we just looked at them, you know. Everybody would be like, you know, the Mexican workers are here. Um, You'd see them walk by in a group and stuff like that. And how did Shannon approach the Mexican workers? Did she resent them? Did she embrace them? I think once they came, she really pretty quickly formed a bond with them. She took one young Mexican trainee under her wing and really decided to train him the way that she'd been trained, pretty much. I think I uh, mother hinned him kind of like he was just like, he's my son's age. He's a good kid. You know, she could have just done the minimum. She could have just answered a few questions, but she wanted him to know the job, and she trained him the way that she was trained. So she's passing on this knowledge, and that knowledge is really all these workers have, right? It's what makes them valuable as people in their minds and, I guess, in the factory itself. Tad, I call him Tad because I never could really say his name right. After I trained him, he'd go to lunch, and he would come back, and he would brought me a cookie from his lunch. You know, and he says, my friend tells me that 
you know, a lot of your people here doesn't like us. He says, I'm, I didn't know that I'm taking your job. I am so sorry Hmm. that I, and I said, no, I said, don't be sorry. I said, it's corporate greed. I said, just, I'm glad that you were able to have that opportunity. Like I was able to have that opportunity. I could tell from the heart, he was very sincere about how he felt bad that he did not know. No one told them. No one told them. And so Shannon tried to be super nice and super upbeat with them, but she would never leave them alone in the factory. She took them everywhere she went. Because she feared something might happen to them? I mean, she didn't say it in so many words, but she didn't want anything to happen to them. So she protected them? Yes. Yes. Did she say why she did that? I mean, I think all of the trainers ended up really seeing their trainees as human beings and seeing themselves in this other person. Very respectful, very nice, very much so like me, you know. So what happens in the summer, Farah? So in August, the last time I went to Indianapolis was the sort of the culmination of all of this. Her daughter goes off to college. She drops her daughter off at college. And then the next day, she goes into the factory, and they're disconnecting her favorite machine, the taco. One of the Mexican team is there, and they're taking it away from her. And I had to turn around and walk outside so that everybody didn't see me crying. And it was upsetting. Very. So, because I was feeling like everything, even now. It's very upsetting. Because it's like um, everything is gone. And there's nothing I can do about it. Just get up and keep going. Ready, set. It seemed like a pretty poignant moment. Um, I believe it was actually caught on video of where you were in this kind of empty factory. What was at, at this at this point? What does it look like inside the factory? How many machines are are left? And what is it starting to look like? It looks like a ghost factory. <laughs> The factory was so empty that I was able to ride our bicycle off trail, shall I say, ride all around the factory on the bicycle because there was nothing left. That's how how it looks. There's nothing left. At what point did did it did it dawn on you that that the president that nobody, but especially that the president, couldn't do anything about this or wouldn't or to save the jobs. I don't know if he just couldn't or he just wouldn't. I felt kind of um, let down, shall I say, you know. I think he just said that just because of his campaign. And then after he's got in there, then he done forgot about us. We don't, it don't matter anymore. 
you know, oh, he's going to raise the tariff and all this other stuff. Well, why don't you, why, why wouldn't you have done it or try to tell them, or I don't know what they do, but, you know, I, he's got other things to tend to. We're not, I don't think that we're part of his uh, agenda anymore. That's obvious. <laughs> Shannon's last day was two weeks ago. I have to keep my keys in this Take care. When I come to um, doing my last, uh, loading the furnace for the last time, it didn't hit me till, th till then. Things are just totally different, and I'm trying to uh, get adjusted and not feel so worthless. <laughs> I know I'm not you worthless, feel... but I, I feel worthless. Like, Why do you feel worthless? Because I feel like I don't feel as good about it as feeling secure to be able to support my family. That's why. The, how they can just up and rip it away from you is just wrong. I mean, I mm -hmm. could see, like I said, if we wasn't making any money or we was doing such a poor job. But bottom line is when you're doing a good job and, and they even tell you you're doing a good job and they turn around and just throw you to the side like you're nothing, it's very hard to take and to swallow, you know, that, you know, and it's like, I'm not that marketable out there who's going to want an old woman now you know <laughs> i think it's just been a roller coaster seven months and i think now that it's over she's finally got to sit down and look at her life and decide what she does next who does she become now that she's no longer the heat treat operator at the sparing factory i lived and i breathed my job i was in there a lot of times seven days a week for a lot of years. And I am grateful that my uncle got me that job. I am grateful and thankful that I was able to have that job because a lot of people don't look out that way because I didn't have a college degree. But, you know, I made as much money probably as some of the college degreed people do, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, you know, because we'd get, we'd get interns that come in over there and they wouldn't know anything. Mm -hmm. But they have, they have a lot of years of college, but so that's where... They, I guess they knew more than me, but not really when it comes to running the parts. The Rexnerd factory was originally slated to close in April, but that was delayed until September because the new plants were taking longer than expected to get up to speed. Shannon's daughter, Nicole, just started as a freshman at Purdue University where she's planning to study nursing. She was awarded more than $30,000 in scholarships to cover her tuition.
Here's what else you need to know today. For the third time, a federal judge has blocked President Trump from enacting a ban on foreign travelers just hours before it was set to take effect. The latest ban, which would have barred citizens of seven countries from entering the U.S., was designed to avoid the claims of discrimination that have undermined Trump's last two bans. But Judge Derek Watson of Hawaii found that the ban was discriminatory by barring entire nationalities without proving that they pose a threat to the U.S. And Uh, later this week, Senator Murray and I, with other senators, will introduce bipartisan legislation to give states additional flexibility to create more choices of health insurance policies in the individual market. Days after the president said he would cut off the payments that have made insurance cheaper for the poor under the Affordable Care Act, two leading senators, Republican Lamar Alexander and Democrat Patty Murray, say they've reached a deal that would fund those payments for the next two years. Our goal is to stabilize and then lower the cost of premiums and to enable all Americans to have access to health insurance. Without the payments, the Times reports, insurance premiums for low-income Americans are expected to soar next year, and many companies may stop offering insurance under the ACA. So we concluded that the best course would be to take this limited bipartisan first step that would avoid the chaos that could occur during 2018 and 2019. President Trump said he is open to supporting the deal. But it is a short-term solution so that we don't have this very dangerous little period That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more.